Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist uh, Church podcast. I'm Pastor Michael Fredericks. And on this podcast, we often will deal with uh, difficult questions or, uh, or big questions, Bible questions, theological questions, and wrestle with them and uh, try to come up with some good answers. And uh, the question that we're wrestling with today is, how do we read or how should we read the book of Revelation? Why are we asking this question? We're asking this question because our church is going to be reading the book of Revelation uh, in our church's church-wide Bible reading plan. And um, I think a lot of people don't really know how to read the book of Revelation. It's complicated. It's weird. I actually, I read, reread the book of Revelation today from front to back, just to remind myself of it. And it is so strange. <laughs> There's so many weird things. We've got uh, this beast coming up out of the ocean and these locusts and a third of the ocean turning to blood and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like, what is this thing? This is so strange. Um, and we're tempted, I think, to um, to ignore it or uh, avoid it or sometimes to read into it things that aren't really there. So I, I want us to to answer the question, how should we read it? How do, how do we approach Revelation correctly? And I enlisted some help because this is a difficult question, something I've been wrestling with for a long time since I've been a kid um, and first kind of got some exposure to the book of Revelation. So I've, I've, I, I thought I want to ask someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to the New Testament. So I've asked my friend, New Testament scholar, Dr. Reverend Dr. Danny Zacharias, uh, who is uh, the professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, uh, who was my professor when I was there. I was part of his first year uh, of teaching, his, his first class. Very uh, first class. Very <laughs> first, yeah. And, uh, and I've just been really uh, impressed with Danny over the years and have a lot of respect for him. He's also... Um, Canada's, I would say Canada's leading indigenous Bible scholar, uh, which is a pretty cool thing. And a lot of his work these days is in that area. And in fact, Danny, maybe you could give us like just a, a one minute explanation of where you are right now and what you're up to, because I think it's really interesting. So welcome, yeah. Dan. Welcome to yeah, the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's a fun topic to uh, discuss and happy to uh, contribute in this way to your church. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm sitting in uh, northern BC right now in a place called Gingoch Lodge and uh, it's I, it's the end of the highway drive that I was on and I'm in Niska First Nation. Uh, I'm currently undergoing a research project. I'm on a half sabbatical and uh, crisscrossing across Canada doing interviews with uh, Indigenous followers of Jesus and uh, doing research on Indigenous interpretations of scripture. And so I'm doing this with a colleague who's in the States, and he's uh, doing the same type of thing, but in the States, and I'm up in Canada, and I have been doing it for a little while. And so it's a lot of fun meeting uh, just great people, great people who love the Lord and uh, and strive to live um, the way that God created them uh, as Indigenous uh, people from many different territories. And so just learning from them and making new friends, and that's what I'm up to. So I'm uh, four hours uh, behind Michael, and he was gracious to uh, meet a little later in the day because uh, it's only seven here right now, but it's a little later for him. I think we're, that's, it's almost 11 o'clock at night. That's okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this, that's really cool. And I'm really, I'm interested to, um, to read the the research that comes out of that. And, and I hope that I can get a book in my hands at some point. Uh, it's obviously that's a topic that really matters to me too. And I'm deeply interested in with my own history of working with indigenous Christians in my previous pastorate. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. Tonight. We <laughs> yeah. are talking about this question about the book of Revelation, this very unusual piece of literature that is in our Bibles. Um, I want to share a little bit about my own history with the book of Revelation, um, just to sort of set the stage for a bit of my own journey. So I grew up in a, in a Baptist church um, in Atlanta, Canada, where the book of Revelation and, and preaching on the end times, uh, the rapture and all that sort of stuff was uh, a pretty big deal. It was very common. Uh, it was part of our um, vocabulary as as uh, as kids yeah. and as teenagers. Um, and the book of Revelation was presented to us as uh, very clearly uh, a book describing future events that we are positioned uh, here in the 21st century. Um, and the events of Revelation haven't happened yet. So the basic outline of it was that, uh, you know, there's some letters to the churches in the first three chapters. Um, those kind of represent what the state of the church will be at the end times when Jesus is preparing to come back. Um, and then uh, and then in Revelation chapter four, when Jesus has come up here, that's literally describing the rapture, that the church is going to be raptured or removed from the, the earth. And and then. What follows over the next seven years is a period of tribulation of God unleashing his wrath upon the world. And in, in the midst of that, the, the beast will arise who is Satan and, and all these things are at least a human representation of Satan. Um, and then after a seven year period, there's going to be this great battle of Armageddon and, and Jesus will come back and wipe out all the evil people. And then there'll be a thousand years on the earth of, of Jesus reigning um, uh, with us. And then after the thousand years, maybe that's when the battle is. I, boy, it's been a while since I've, I used to have this all memorized. But anyway, then there's this battle or something. And then there's another uh, final rebellion. After yeah, years. Satan's allowed to, Satan's allowed to tempt the world one more time. Then, then the judgments and then the final states, finally new heaven and new earth and all that. Um, so that was what I was taught you know, sort of the left behind series timeline. And, uh, and, and I wasn't presented with really any other option uh, of how to approach this stuff. There, I think it may have been, might've been mentioned, but it was mentioned in the sense of there's other ways to read revelation, but they're wrong, you know, and this is the only correct way to read it. Um, so that was, that was my, uh, my, my understanding of revelation as, as being entirely about future events that haven't happened yet. Uh, and then of course, as time goes on, you study more and you learn things. And I began to question that. And, uh, and now I'm at a place where I'm not really sure that I believe that. In fact, I'm quite sure that I don't believe that that's the, the best way to read the book of revelation, but we'll get to that in a minute. But Danny, I'm curious about your own history with this end times theology and, and, uh, the rapture and left behind and all that stuff. Yeah. So I would say that my, uh, my church upbringing would be 
pretty close to the same. And in fact, it might've been an e even a little more intensive. And uh, what I mean by that is, so my, so I didn't become a believer until I was uh, 15, but then I jumped whole hog into it. And, uh, you know, not only did uh, Jesus uh, come in and, uh, and, and save me into sell, you know, bringing me into new life, but also uh, church uh, really saved my, my, how would you say it? Family and communal life, you know, it not being in uh, the greatest circumstances at home, you know, it really became a new family. It gave me new habits. It gave me new places to go. And one of those was Bible studies. Um, you know, so I went to the teen Bible studies. I was going to the seniors Bible studies and sitting around with people much older than me. And I just would go wherever they were. And, um, uh, so the church that I was in is uh, Plymouth Brethren. That's the denomination, even though they will not even call themselves a denomination, but they are a denomination, uh, Plymouth Brethren. And for those of you who don't know, Plymouth Brethren is a very conservative denomination. So um, they always have two services. Uh, one is a regular service with uh, preaching and singing and stuff. But then there is always every Sunday a Lord's Supper service as well. And that's a whole entirely separate service that lasts about an hour in which um, uh, men can share uh, either a word that they feel God gave them um, or lead in a song or offer prayer and uh, women covered their heads uh, during those service. Now, um, in addition to all of that, just to give, you know, that's a small rundown of the Plymouth Brethren and Plymouth Brethren was started by John Nelson Darby and John uh -huh. Nelson Darby is a church historical figure. And he is important, not only because he started this denomination, um, but much like what Mike just summarized in terms of that particular way of thinking about the end times um, was really spearheaded by John Nelson Darby uh, and a theological system called dispensationalism. Right. Um, and then John Nelson Darby was um, followed by what, what time, sorry, what time timeline Darby, was Darby? He was born in 1800. So yeah, just into the, okay. And so, um, someone who followed closely behind Darby and who really uh, propagated his teachings in a huge way was a guy named Schofield. Schofield. I knew you were going to say Schofield. Yes. Yeah. And Schofield wrote the Schofield reference Bible, which uh, I wouldn't doubt uh, that you perhaps even have it on your bookshelf somewhere. And, uh, and I don't, not... but, but we had the Ryrie study Bible, which was the follow-up okay. to the Schofield. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so the Schofield Reference Bible was a study Bible, you know, and study Bibles are great. But uh, one thing about study Bibles is it obviously influences how you read the text, right? Because it's giving you interpretive information. This is how you read it. Well, the Schofield Reference Bible, which some people who are listening to this may have, or the Ryrie uh, Study Bible, um, it was thoroughly dispensationalist in its thinking and rooted again in John Nelson Darby's teachings. And so the 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 left behind series and uh how Lindsay's late great prominent earth and uh in my day or sorry in my grandma's day jack van impey um mm. and uh a guy who's really influential for me uh his name was rob linstead uh he was another uh 
you know, teacher on eschatology on end times. Um, these are all propagating very much from Darby and from the Schofield Reference Bible that really popularized it. Um, prior to that, um, in end times wasn't talked about in the same ways that it's often talked about now, like with the language that you you just mentioned, you know, tribulation and arguing whether it's pre, mid, or post-tribulation, um, that type of language about the end times and, and even tribulation itself, like a great tribulation of a certain number of years, that's all comes back to being spread, uh, especially by the Schofield Reference Bible. Yeah, so it's only about 200 years old, this whole way of thinking about this. Yeah. In the 2000 yeah. year history of the church, this is all pretty new. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And having those types of very kind of trying to be very meticulous in how to understand, you know, the timeline of the future. Uh, that's it's it's very new. Yeah. But I grew I definitely like you. I grew up in that. And uh, and, you know, I remember not only learning about that, but even in Sunday school, like debating, is it going to be in five years or it's going to be in 10 years? Like people were convinced that it was going to be. 99 or 2000 2001 like well because was, danny uh, israel became yeah. a nation in 1948 and it's got to be within that's one right. generation of that right that's right yes <laughs> absolutely yeah so yes and there's some people that would still hold to that and and would say and again this is probably the last time i remember talking about this in my church context was um there's one, at least one person left on this planet right now, Mike, who was alive during the birth of the Israelite nation, and it'll be before that very last person dies. Right. So they, they continue to stretch it out. Um, so that's, and, and of course, it's all, you know, it's all rooted in a particular way to read um, sections of Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke, the, the, uh, the discourse there that we call the Olivet Discourse, which is just, uh, we call it that because he was on the Mount of Olives, uh, as well as a section in uh, the book of Daniel, and then, of course, Revelation. Um, but but Daniel and Matthew, in my opinion, anyway, those become the hinge points. And if, and, and once we, you know, maybe tweak a little more <laughs> how we're reading those, then it, it, then I would think, it spurns us less towards than having to shove revelation into a particular sequence and understanding and, and timeline. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about revelation. That's what we're here to talk about specifically. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think this thing happens with revelation that is very unusual. And that is we do something with revelation that we don't do with any other book of the Bible. So when we're, when we're, when we're taught to read the Bible and to interpret it correctly, we're always taught to approach the text with a, trying to gain an understanding of what it meant in, to the original audience, right? What yes. did the author of this book mean? Now, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This, this is God's word, but it meant something to the people to whom it was written originally, Okay. And we do that. That's that's how you're supposed to read the Bible, right? Start with the first century understanding. This is basic like hermeneutics class from my time at Acadia, right? It's like, okay, you start with the first century under or whatever century it was written in, the original audience understanding. Yep. Then you can cross, you know, the bridge of history 
uh, to gain gaining the the principle, the main, the meaning, the lesson. You can take that and apply it to today. Yeah. Only after you first made sense of it for what it meant to the original audience. Yes. But when it comes to revelation, so many people, and this is what I used to do, we throw out that principle. Yes. And we say that doesn't apply to revelation for some reason. Yes. Because revelation is entirely about the future. And so when we come to revelation, John was writing, had, had this vision, wrote it down, distributed it to the churches uh, for them to read it. But it actually meant nothing to them. It had absolutely zero logical sense to anybody in the first century. It was because it's entirely about things that haven't happened yet, like in the year 2030 or whatever, who knows. Um, and so... John gave them this letter and they're just supposed to sort of scratch their heads and go, Oh, well, I guess that's not relevant to us because it's about nuclear war and, and helicopters and so, you know, but that that is so wrong, right? Should we, are, should we approach revelation like we do every other text? That's my question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I think so. I totally agree. Like it, it, there has to be, when we come and interpret it and bring forth the message so that it, we're encountering it today there needs to be a strong correlation there needs to be a correlation with how that first century reader would have read it right so there's a, like you said it whether it's principles or whether it's um you know a, a direct a, a direct linkage or that it, or there's a correlation um there needs to be something that connects with that original meaning like the writer of revelation had something to say <laughs> to his first re to his first readers and that's what we need to do that hard work of trying to hear and especially with revelation when you think about the fact that at the be very beginning you know it is a circular document to seven churches and i don't know if this is how you were taught because there's different schools of how revelation is read but i remember being taught that the seven churches of of revelation in those early chapters represent different church periods in church history so this is another uh, kind of mode within a futuristic reading mm. where they would they would take the seven churches and say this church represents the church from AD 33 to like 150 and then they split up church history and of course it ended up being and we are the seventh church and then once that's done that's when that's when uh, the rapture happens and so that's how i was taught mm -hmm. but okay. again it's exactly like what you said it's exactly like what you said it's well okay well so you mean when he wrote to thyatira he wasn't actually saying anything to them he was talking about a church in the future again what's the point of that like why write something like that? And this is, again, it's part of what we bring to a text that can really throw us off course, right? So I remember like another, you know, just a, a simple example for me is uh, prior to becoming a Christian, I was interested in uh, religious things and I I got into Nostradamus, if you remember that name from way back when. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so he was supposedly uh, an oracle. You know, he wrote, he would write prophecies. And so in my mind, prophecy meant telling the future. And so when I became a Christian um, and I was learning about the basics of my Bible and it was either 
my Sunday school teacher or one of my family members, you know, they said Isaiah the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet. And so I'm thinking, oh, he's a prophet. He's telling about the future. And so I remember the very first time reading, it was one of those major prophets and I'm reading it. And the whole time I'm thinking he's talking about the future. He's talking about the future. You know, I'm trying to assess how he's talking about my future when mm -hmm. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah are addressing their own people and their own circumstances. And so it's because I misunderstood what it meant to be a prophet in the time of you know the israelite kingship what does that mean to be a prophet then and so i carry that in and i carry that into revelation when i was younger as well it's therefore must all be futuristic and and it was a you know it's some the problem is we bring things in when we come to the text and that's inevitable we all do that right um, but we want to make sure that we're checking and saying is the things i'm bringing a correct way to to read this right am i following the rules of revelation because revelation is a type a different types of literature mm. and different types of literature have different rules for reading right and so we want to make sure that we're we're bringing the right um you know set of skills to to reading these particular texts yeah right so so let's talk about genre then so that's a really important and a really important piece of this right so yeah. every book of the bible is a genre of literature it's it's not all you know history it's not all poetry it's not all this or that it's it's a whole bunch of different genres that were written and revelation is very distinctly one particular type of genre well i mean there's multiple things in revelation going on right but yeah. but um most bible scholars would call this an apocalypse or apocalyptic literature so yeah. That's Can you right. help us understand what that means as we're approaching Revelation? How do we think about what the genre is and how that affects how we should read it? Yeah. Yeah. So apocalyptic literature. So Daniel, portions of the book of Daniel, um, portions of Ezekiel, um, some, again, portions of, I would say, the Olivet Discourse, again, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would be apocalyptic and there's other books outside of our new testament and old testament that are written by prior to the new testament for instance that were also apocalyptic literature and there's uh writings after the new testament written by christians and jews that was also apocalyptic literature and so it has a very particular um style and a particular way of uh providing its message so apocalypse or apocalypsis means an unveiling mm -hmm. now that's what the greek word means and if you kind of think of it as like tearing the fabric of reality to show something behind that's also going on simultaneously as it were this is what the apocalypse does and so it is a heavenly view on earthly realities and so something is going on on earth and then the way that it's described in an apocalypse is with these more fantastical and cosmic um, metaphors and and um, and narrative and almost always and this is true in revelation you have an angelic interpreter as well because as a human being who's looking down on this or receiving this vision 
you're not meant to fully understand it because you're seeing it on the heavenly side of things, which can be confusing because we're humans. And so you need an angel to help you interpret. So if you think back to the story of Daniel and you think of Revelation, there's a, an angel around and the angel just says what's happening and what's going on and describing it further. So um, a good example, well, I think it's a good example anyway, I use it. And um, it's one that's more familiar to people. So if you don't mind, I'll just uh, mention it now. Yeah. If you go to uh, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two is a familiar passage for us because it's when the church, uh, we have the birth of the spirit filled church. And, and what happens right after that, if you recall, is that the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit comes to reside on the community and they all begin to speak in other languages and the people around them hear this. And uh, some of them, again, in verse 13, it says uh, some of them are sneering and say, these guys are just filled with too much wine. They drank new wine. So they're essentially they're drunk and babbling. Right. And so then Peter says, he stands up and he says, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known and listen to what I say. They're not drunk as you suppose it's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he says, verse 16, no, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote Joel, which is an apocalyptic vision. And in Joel, he says, in the last days, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Old men dreams dreams. And then if you go down and see verse 19, and I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoke and mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Notice how Peter starts that quotation. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, interestingly enough, it was already described what just happened. And there was no darkening of the sun. Mm -hmm. There was no moon turning to blood. There was no smoky mist and blood and fire. Because that was the symbolic apocalyptic uh, language, cosmic language to signify something significant on earth. And so the significant component was the spirit coming and filling the church. And he says, this is what Joel was talking about, but Joel is giving you this heavenly view, you right. know, behind the fabric of reality as it were. And that, and then you see this apocalyptic language. And so we, we don't go to this and say, Oh, we don't therefore say, Oh, the sun must have also been darkened and the moon must have also turned blood. Yeah. No, yeah. Let's look Peter and see if there's any records of, 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 of eclipses and stuff that happened on the day of Pentecost. You know, we don't, we don't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people probably do. (laughs) Uh, Some people do. Yeah, that's right. So the point is that this, this cosmic and uh, apocalyptic type of language is to signify when something significant happens within God's uh, salvation history, as it were. And so this is the type of language that's used, but what people saw were men and women speaking in tongues, right? Because the Holy Spirit had just fallen on the church. So it's a good example for us because we're more familiar with Pentecost than we are with Revelation. Mm. But you see how apocalyptic language is being used there. And so that's what uh, apocalypticism is like, right? It's using these different types of language and stories and pictures to describe something that's happening on earth. So we have that going on in Revelation where the beast 
you know, rising out of the sea, um, that is a heavenly portrait of something significant happening on the earth. But it's not about a literal beast rising out of a literal sea. It's about us. It's someone else, or it's a system, or it's a power, or it's something like that. And so this is the type of language that's going to be used. It's not that we should be expecting a literal beast to rise out of the sea. So apocalyptic literature is using these cosmic and fantastical elements to give this heavenly portrait on of what's happening on the earth. And again, this is not only unique to Revelation. We have apocalyptic literature elsewhere in our Bible, right. and then there's apocalyptic literature elsewhere uh, outside of our scriptures, but, you know, in Jewish and Christian writings. So what you're saying basically is really, if you're reading the book of Revelation, literally, you're reading it incorrectly. Right, because apocalyptic <laughs> literature is not right. meant to be read literally. Yeah, right. It's yeah. just like the poetry in in Psalms where it says that God shelters us under his wings. You know, does that mean that we really are sheltered under God's wings? No, of course not. It's poetry. Right. And and so it's, right. it's communicating a message to us that's not a, it's, you know, it's true. Right. But it's not true in a literal sense. And and that same thing applies to apocalyptic literature. Yeah. And, you know, another simple example is that Jesus uh, teaches so often in parables, but when he teaches that story, the point isn't that this actually happened, mm -hmm. you know, so there wasn't actually a woman who was actually sweeping for a coin that she lost. And then when she found it, she actually threw a party. Um, it's rather a story that mm -hmm. he uh, tells us to, you know, to, to uh, illustrate a, a particular point. Right. Okay, so so how should we then read Revelation? So, you know, it's it's obviously it's apocalyptic literature. It's all symbols. It's, it's highly symbolic, as you've described, describing a heavenly perspective of earthly events and that sort of thing. Um, what what would it have meant to the first century audience reading this book? Is it, they're reading it in you know, in and around the year 70 AD, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world, including the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Is, is Should we understand it as relating to some of those events? Yeah, so uh, one important component of apocalypticism, as far as we can tell, as we look at the history of its usage uh, uh, in early Judaism and in the New Testament is that it's often uh, around those times of um, difficulty within the community, whether it be persecution, um, uh, or usually it's persecution or the law, you know, significant loss of things like the loss of the nation um, for, for the Jews, for instance, pre, prior to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, or in the case, like you've just said, um, you have the destruction of the temple. That was obviously a very traumatic and world-changing event for Jewish people. Um, there's debate in uh, scholarship for the New Testament uh, for revelation of whether it's in the 70s or whether it's in the 90s. Because you have that you have Nero 
the Emperor Nero, who disliked the Christians and were persecuting them um, in the late 60s and into the 70s. But you also have uh, Domitian, who was uh, an emperor later in the 90s, who was also per persecuting the church. And so you have these two uh, early times of persecution in the church, and uh, Revelation potentially fits into the either of those so so there is some debate but in either of those cases it's acknowledged that there's persecution happening within these communities uh, towards these communities in asia minor so remember again the book begins as a circular letter to to these seven churches that you know we, we know where these churches are uh, in asia minor and they're undergoing persecution uh, from uh, from the empire and, you know, the empire, the people who are in control there. And so um, Revelation, the other interesting thing, and I mentioned this before to you, uh, Mike, is that Revelation has multiple genres. Uh, you have letters at the beginning. You do have um, what I would say is uh, almost more, uh, how would you say it, uh, uh, Prophetic, futuristic. Uh, that's partic particularly at the at the uh, end of the book, right. which is very similar to Isaiah. And then you have the largest chunk in the middle, which is that apocalyptic. And so, going back to your question of then, how do we read it? Um, how do we look at these things? Like you said, um, it's that you know that almost cardinal practice of biblical interpretation of saying, as a first century reader, undergoing persecution even to the point of death how would i read this and in the case of apocalyptic we have to do this extra work of trying to get into the mindset of the first century because they're of course using images and symbols that we're not necessarily going to be familiar with and also we need to do a little more work in kind of in backfilling the historical components um, so that we can uh, hear as best we can with first century ears. And I would say it's a little more work in apocalyptic literature to do that um, because uh, they're using unfamiliar sometimes, unfamiliar symbols and things like that. Unfamiliar so that to work. And of course, you know, this is where we yeah, unfamiliar to us. That's right. Oh, but that, were that's they... the thing. Like you said, this would have meant something to them. Yeah. So so do you think that as you know, they're reading about the number six 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 and they're reading about the mark of the beast and they're reading about this and that and the other thing and, and the woman who's sitting on seven hills and all that sort of stuff, would they have would they have the first century Christians who were reading this, would they have understood what those symbols were referring to? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I yeah, and I also think see the nature of apocalyptic literature is also that you can begin to correlate things even outside of the first century. So what I mean by that is um, as you read about these great evil powers in Revelation. So if you're a first century reader, you're easily equating these things with Rome and with the local um, temple of the local pagan god, and they're forcing you or they're trying to force you to um, to sacrifice to this pagan god when you are a Christ follower, uh, other threat, other, under threat of death or persecution, right? So in those circumstances, 
those types of correlations with the beast who is devouring the people of God um, would be easily equated with those with with those powers of your day. Mm-hmm. And equally, as you get into different uh, times within church history, you know, I think of the persecuted church today um, in places where you know it is very very difficult to hold your faith in um, in parts of the world today. And those people, as they read Revelation, I think could could easily um, and accurately say, you know, right now, this government who is tearing down our churches or who is forcing us to convert um, to the, you know, to the state religion, they're acting like the beast in Revelation. They're acting mm-hmm. like the dragon. They're, they're empowered by the dragon. Yeah. Um, and so that's how apocalyptic literature um, is designed. Again, it's that it's that tearing back and saying what what is um, energizing these demonic and evil forces um, that we see at play that are actually persecuting us today. So in a way, there's a, a bit of a timelessness to it in that sense. Yes. It's not yes. tied yes. to future events. It's not necessarily tied just to first century events, although it had application and meaning in the first century. But there's also these truths that are in the book of Revelation that are true for every generation in all places, but especially in times and places where the church is experiencing intense persecution. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, so I think about another part of Revelation. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful part and it's a sad part where you have the saints uh, crying and saying, how long? how long until you know this persecution ends that the blood of the martyrs are crying out and you can see how that's applicable again if going to periods in church history but even to today um, where people are being uh, killed and martyred for their faith Um, and those communities and and we should join with them of saying how long lord until Mm -hmm. until the beast is slain you know until these evil powers um, are are done away with and, and so that, you know, the, the vindication of the saints, so that, that there is that timeless, timelessness to apocalyptic literature, and especially to Revelation, um, where, you know, that's why I think it's a, that's why I think it's so beautiful that it sits at the end of our scriptures. Even though we think of Revelation so often as being all about the the fighting and and the battles and things like that, there are I think it's sixteen no seventeen inch instances of hymns or acclamations uh, within Revelation. Mm. So there's times of where, where even in the midst of persecution um, and all of the you know the this evil that the saints burst out into praise yeah i love it yeah those are my favorite parts of revelation that just i mean there's a whole song that we sing in church called revelation song right which is just Mm -hmm. this intense song of worship and praise to god and it's taken directly from revelation yeah Yeah, exactly yeah and so again that i just think that 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 has something to teach us today of even in the midst and and we certainly are not persecuted in the north american uh, setting. Um, and so, 
given that, how much more um, should we be able to honor uh, God in, in word and deed, uh, even in the midst of, you know, the small circumstances that we have, um, mm -hmm. because the persecuted church through history, um, including in that first century, um, was able to continue their praise of God, uh, even in the midst of those circumstances. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I've never really thought about that before. That's cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah. You've mentioned a couple times, you know, this revelation is at the end of our Bibles. So what about the end, right? So the last two or three chapters of Revelation is is clearly talking about future events. So even though, you know, I'm quite convinced that the whole book isn't generally about future events in the dispensationalist left behind kind of way of thinking. Um, I, I still am pretty darn convinced that, you know, revelation, especially 21 and 22, you know, this is talking and I guess bits of 20 as well, or maybe the all of 20 is definitely talking about things that haven't happened yet when Christ returns. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, um, You'll you'll see a lot of that. That's where you see a lot of alignment and overlap with um, portions of Isaiah, where you have uh, new heaven and new earth um, visions as well in Isaiah. And so there's a lot of overlap with that. And so that's a again not every apocalyptic, uh, sorry, not every uh, um, apocalyptic document, uh, both Jewish and Christian, outside of our Bible, ends that way. But a lot of them do, where they they kind of you know, after overviewing a particular time in that apocalyptic way, they then take that gaze into the final future and see um, the more general prophecy, as it were, of God um, bringing all things to completion. Uh, and that's what Isaiah did. And I think that's what Revelation does too. So, so I agree with you there. And, you know, what's interesting about uh, that section, of course, is when you get there, it's not terribly specific. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's very descriptive of how God is bringing all things together, but it's there is no sequence of events necessarily, as you see in the earlier chapters. Um, it's Again, it's that gaze towards the bright future of God uh, bringing all things uh, to completion. And I love the circular ending at as it were. And what I mean by that is um, this beautiful tie back to the beginning, because we have the tree of life again, mm -hmm. um, springing from both sides of the river. And, and so we're again, within that, within that space of always being in God's presence, with that tree of life, uh, being representative of, of that beginning. So we, so there's, there is this kind of circular return back to the beginning as it were, um, yeah. because it's talking about that new and finalized creation. So I do agree with you, um, that we do, we do have that future consummation of all of history at the end of revelation. Wow. Oh man. I could talk to you for hours about all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I have so I keep writing down all these other questions that come to mind, but I, we, we don't have time to get to them all. Um, I don't even know how long we've been at this point, but, uh, let me just, um, okay, just a few more things I'd like to sure. discuss real quick. Um, one of the images that we often associate with Revelation is Jesus as the Lion of Judah. You know, Jesus as the, um, 
you know, at least this is again, what I was kind of raised on is, you know, he went out as a lamb, uh, but uh, he's coming back as the lion, you know, as this guy who's going to kick button and, you know, destroy everybody and, and all this stuff. So I, as I've been thinking about that, and again, even today, as I, as I read revelation again, I keep noticing that really the predominant image of Jesus in Revelation is not as a lion or as a conqueror, but as as a lamb, right? Mm, um, yes. And as and and as a sacrificed lamb, uh, a bloody lamb who's who's covered in his own blood, not necessarily mm. the blood of the people that he's killing. Um, and boy, that really kind of changes shifts a lot of how you think about. Um, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, again, I totally agree with you. I think the, because you do have the image of, of Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth and on horseback, and that is there, but I like how you, I like the language you use. Cause I agree with that. It's, that is not the dominant picture of Jesus in revelation. It's that he is the slaughtered lamb. And this is what's so beautiful about it is that the lion is the lamb, right? Yeah, and the lamb right. is the lion at the same time. And and it's this, like you said, it's, he's covered in his blood because the way to power is through suffering and through service. And mm -hmm. that was the message of Jesus in his life. It's what we read in the gospels. And it's the same thing we read in Revelation. And that that slaughtered lamb um even though it looks you know in some sense when you think of a slaughtered lamb obviously it looks lifeless unable to do anything yet it is that slaughtered lamb that is ultimately able to defeat evil uh able to defeat the beast able to uh, chain up the dragon right mm -hmm. so again it reinforces um the type of leadership and the type of power that we are supposed to emulate as Christians and it's not of picking up arms and it's not of you know setting up systems of whatever it might be it's rather through this sacrificial service and again it's you know it's like Jesus said taking up one's cross and following him and so it's consistent from the gospels to revelation One other thing that we didn't mention that I did want to say is Revelation um, is also, I would say, the most political book in the New Testament. Yeah. And that's something that we, um, it would be good for us not to forget um, because these, uh, these evil forces that are against the early church in that time are political forces and mm -hmm. in rome in roman times politics and religion were intertwined they were not separate entities and so um you know when they're talking about uh, these evil forces and when they're talking about resisting the evil forces these are very, very political stances 
Um, and, and so there's, it's very hard to hold our modern day separation of church and state when you read Revelation, because these things are intertwined in the first century. And it should make us, uh, you know, be very, we need to be very diligent and um, we need to rely on, on, the, on the spirit and on our uh, wisdom and discernment to say, when do we see things going on in the world or in our politics that that are that end up being at the root of it evil in the sense that it's leading us away from God's ways or it's oppressing those who are uh, marginalized, those who are on the side and making it worse for them to the betterment of those who are already on the top. Um, mm -hmm. Revelation is speaking against those things. So it's a very overtly political book in that way as well. Wow. Yeah, don't uh, don't get in bed with the empire. I'm sure that there's a lot that we've talked about um, in this conversation that is is new information for people that are listening, um, and some of it probably quite surprising, even. Um, shocking or very much paradigm shifting anyway um, in terms of how to approach all this stuff. Is there any other resources that you would recommend for anybody, books or articles or um, anything at all that, that might help people kind of navigate this stuff? Sure. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that because, you know, I, I went through that same paradigm shift as well and it was quite jarring. Mm -hmm. um, and so for those of you who, you know, do feel like that or you know maybe you're can't believe you're hearing what i'm saying <laughs> maybe uh just to just to uh say i understand that and at the very least even if you you know come to say you know i you know i still gonna hold to um what i think about this uh, at the very least to understand that there are different ways to read revelation and there should be no surprise for you that the scriptures are even deeper than you imagined and and so one thing i'd like to say in that regard then is a couple books so uh to get a you know an overview of different ways that revelation is read there's good books that provide uh, overviews or snapshots of different perspectives and so one for instance is called four views on the book of revelation and so that would give you um, you know an overview of some different ways that revelation is read yeah i've got that one so if anybody wants to borrow it uh there you go i've got yeah. that in my library yep yeah there's uh, a really good book that focuses especially i think on the worship component which i, I really love called reverse thunder yeah by eugene peterson got that one so too that's a really so, good one yeah another one um, for those of you who, uh, again, like me and Mike, have very much grown up with the um, the kind of standard dispensationalist view of, uh, you know, a left behind type of perspective on the end times, uh, there's a book by Hank Hanegraaff called The Apocalypse Code. And um, so he looks at those, you know, the variety of uh, common perspectives within that uh, way of reading and shows how, um, why he thinks there's holes in that, you know, perspective and an alternative way of reading. So that's called the Apocalypse Code by Hank Hanegraaff. The Bible Answer Man. The Bible Answer Man. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then 
another good book, which I'll be, and, and I should, this is my opportunity, I guess, to plug something too at Acadia Divinity College. This coming spring, uh, I'm teaching a class on Revelation. No way. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the books that will be required for that uh, class is uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly by mm. Michael Gorman. Yeah, that's that's on my list. I haven't read that one yet, but yeah, yeah, so that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's some books, uh, book suggestions for you. Uh, I'm also uh, almost done one at the moment called "The Rapture Exposed: The Message uh, of Hope in the Book of Revelation" by Barbara R. Rossing, R O S S I N G, which is excellent. <clears throat> Because as Danny mentioned earlier, the rapture is not actually in the book of Revelation. And I would say it's not anywhere even in the Bible <laughs> at all uh, in the sense that we've understood it. I do believe they're in the, well, that's a whole other thing. But anyway, yes. yeah. I do believe we're going to rise to meet the Lord, but I don't think he's taken us away. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's no doubt that Paul and Peter uh, and Revelation and Jesus himself talks about his return. There's no, we're not disputing that at all. 100%. <laughs> it's the, it's the way that we talk about a rapture of the church prior yeah. um, that, that we would be questioning, not the second coming. Uh, that's the, that's the blessed hope of the church. Amen. Yeah. And I have preached that clearly and consistently. So don't fire me, Emmanuel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Danny. This is just, I just love these sorts of conversations and um, I appreciate so much your willingness to take time away from what you're working on there in uh, in BC at the moment. So, uh, man, just, uh, I, I love you and I love your work and it's a pleasure and a joy to call you a friend. So thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, right back at you, man. That's great. All right. All right. Well, God bless you. Take care. All right. Thanks. Take care. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the Emmanuel Truro Podcast. Until next time.